This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. It's an understatement. This is quite a turnout for a uh, <laughs> early Saturday afternoon, and we're, we're very excited to uh, have uh, Andrew McCabe with us. Um, has anyone not already seen uh, Andy on TV <laughs> this past week? Um, He's, um, he's certainly made uh, all the rounds, but I think the widespread interest in, in what he has to say ref- reflects not only a seemingly insatiable appetite for behind-the-scenes accounts of, uh, of what's going on uh, in the current administration, but also an appreciation for how much fresh and credible insight uh, he- Andy has contributed. Uh, indeed, one of the byproducts of this Trump period has been a rather unusual outpouring of books. Um, <laughs> hey, bring them on, you know. <laughs> books, books by former high-ranking Justice Department or intelligence community officials who, like uh, Andy, are sounding alarms about Trump. Uh, counting the journalistic works as well that have further exposed the administration's dysfunction, mendacity, and uh, ego, egoism, Uh, It's easy to see why political books last year ranked among the top-selling categories. Uh, Now, Andy's book, The Threat, uh, is the latest in this trend, but as reviewers have attested, it's one of the better ones so far, uh, tightly written uh, uh, and fast-paced, yet uh, substantive uh, and revealing, uh, and blunt about uh, what it's trying to tell. Uh, Andy says, right in chapter one, let me state the proposition openly, the work of the FBI is being undermined by the current president. Now, interestingly, uh, some of the biggest headlines that Andy has made this week um, have come from disclosures not in the book. And I'm, uh, of course, referring to the account on 60 Minutes, uh, where he reported that top Justice Department officials, after Trump's firing of FBI Director uh, Jim Comey, discussed which cabinet members might be willing to invoke the 25th Amendment. Uh, and Andy also confirmed that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein considered wearing a wire to record Trump. Uh, but, but, but while Andy um, left out some things, making his book not exactly a tell-all, Uh, It certainly qualifies as a tell-a-lot. It includes, among other highlights, a devastating portrait portrait of Jeff Sessions as Attorney General, fascinating characterizations of what Robert Mueller was like as FBI Director, uh, and revealing details about uh, the investigation of Hillary Clinton's email server, uh, the firing of Comey, Trump's deference to Vladimir Putin, Uh, and efforts by Trump and uh, his Republican allies to discredit the Russia probe and destroy public confidence in the nation's top law enforcement agency. Um, You should should know that after this week of uh, many appearances uh, by Andy, today is the first time he's going to get to talk about his book without being, you know, um, uh, having to answer questions by... um, by journalists or moderators. Of course, he will leave time at the end to answer questions from a number of you. Of course, Andy left the, the FBI under a cloud 
fired the day before he would have become eligible for retirement benefits, accused by the FBI Inspector General of making false statements about contacts with the media. Still, the controversy and accompanying notoriety have called attention to just how accomplished a 22-year career Andy had at the FBI. He joined the Bureau in 1996 after having practiced law for several years. From early assignments as a street agent investigating organized crime, he rose to hold senior positions in the Counterterrorism Division, the National Security Branch, and the Washington Field Office before becoming Deputy Director in early 2016. And for four months in 2017, he served as Acting Director following Comey's dismissal. As Andy points out in his book, Russia and its nefarious dealings managed to bookend his FBI career. The organized crime that he spent his first years at the Bureau investigating had links to Russia. His last days in the FBI, two decades later, were spent investigating the Russian government's interference in America's 2016 presidential election. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Andrew McCabe. Wow, this is uh, truly overwhelming. So thank you all for your interest in the story, your interest in the book, and your support and interest in coming out today. Um, so I thought I would just make a few remarks about my thoughts about the book and some of the things I was trying to accomplish in writing it. Um, and then I will just briefly read a few short sections from the book that I think support these points. And of course, I know you probably all have many questions, so we'll leave a lot of room for that as well. Okay, so full disclosure, I love the FBI. If, that was in any, if there was any doubt in anyone's mind, despite everything that uh, has happened over the last two years and all that we've been through as a family, I still love that organization and I always will. It is an incredible institution. It is both majestic and ordinary, it is powerful and fragile, and it is capable of miracles and mistakes all in the same minute. The FBI is composed of many people who share the same piece of DNA, and that is the desire to do good. As people who are drawn to this work, to serve their country, to right wrongs, to catch the bad guys and protect the weak. So in thinking back, I had some time on my hands, as you know, think, <laughs> thinking back on my career, you know, I, as I thought about this project, you know, I had a lot of reasons that I wanted to write the book and a lot of things that I wanted to accomplish with it. First, for as much as we talk about the FBI and our work, I realized that most people don't really know that much about the organization. So I kind of wanted to give people a peek behind the FBI curtain to show what draws people to serve in the FBI, how we do our work, and why we make the decisions we make. I thought that if more people understood the principles, the authorities, and the processes that we rely on, then more people will understand that we don't make decisions based on politics or personal preferences. Second, I think that the president and his supporters 
relentless attacks on the FBI and the Department of Justice are making the country less safe. Creating false narratives of FBI corruption and projecting politics onto our decisions is eroding the public's confidence in institutions that we rely on to protect America and uphold the Constitution. This country needs a strong, effective, and independent FBI. And I think the president is undermining that. And the fact that he does this simply for his own political purposes, indeed for his own survival, makes it even worse. Finally, I wanted the book to shed some light on the value of a life in public service. It is common these days to hear people talking about a deep state or throwing around words like treason and, and plotting coups. These are lies. They are inflammatory words weaponized to entice readers, viewers, and voters to believe a specific set of political talking points. But the damage they do is significant. When we start to vilify the good work of hundreds of thousands of men and women who are devoted to the service of this nation through careers in public service, we dishonor their commitment, sacrifice, and contributions to our own lives. It is time to stand up and recognize the important work that people do across the government and public institutions. I worry about our ability to continue to attract the best and brightest to lives of public service. And I think about all those serving today and the elevating fear they must have about standing up, speaking out, speaking truth to power, and doing what they know is right. Those are hard things to do under the best circumstances. They become immeasurably harder when you worry that making those hard decisions might subject you to scorn, public ridicule by powerful people, and maybe the loss of your job and pension. To all those serving today, I want to say that it is more important now than ever to stand up, follow your conscience, follow your oath, and do the right thing. Even if it hurts you personally, it's still the right thing to do. So with that introduction, I'd like to read for you just a couple of short passages. It's not a very long book. I could probably get through the whole thing. But... <laughs> okay, Brad's saying no. Just keep it tight. <clears throat> all right, all right. Good point, good point. Good point. Okay, um, so this one is just uh, a little bit about, um, about the FBI. I started my life in the FBI in New York in 1996, chasing Russian mobsters as a member of the Organized Crime Task Force. As soon as I became part of my first squad, from the first day, I thought, I am never leaving this. Yeah, and I never lost that feeling. In a 21-year career, I had just about every job an agent could have, and I always held on to a belief that this organization is unique. Its capabilities are incomparable. Today's FBI is the combined strength, knowledge, experience, and dedication of tens of thousands of people in 500 offices across the country and around the world. 
They serve in war zones and other hostile environments with partners from the Defense Department and the Department of Justice. They are men and women of every race, religion, national origin, and sexual orientation. They are agents, analysts, scientists, forensic accountants, medics, auto mechanics, bomb technicians, linguists, locksmiths, hackers, ballistic experts, security specialists, administrative specialists, and secretaries. Some of them fly, some of them go underwater, and some of them know how to drive very, very fast. <laughs> More than a few of them could be making a lot of money in Silicon Valley. The range, quality, and difficulty of the jobs they do would be hard to overstate. They perform feats of immense exactitude, such as recovering the wreckage of a downed airliner from the sea off Long Island and reconstructing the plane in a hangar. They keep company with Americans who are coping with incalculable losses, as when, after a mass shooting, the FBI brings trained comfort dogs to sit quietly with family members of the victims. As deputy director, I had the ability to put agents on any doorstep in America in about two hours. I think the part of writing that was most exciting to me was not the perilous chapters towards the end that you've heard talked about in the news, but really going through the cases that I had the privilege to work. And there are so many stories, you know, FBI agents, we love to sit around and tell stories about cases. So there was a, it was a, a great process in that respect. But this section that I'll read from is about my first big case as an agent in New York City working Russian organized crime. So where is all this going? As an agent, you don't know at first. You probably won't know for a long while. And the starting point can seem innocuous, like that call from Felix, the furniture store owner. Kerr, who was my supervisor at the time, said I had to go out and interview the guy. Felix lived in a predominantly Russian part of Brooklyn, but his store was in Flatbush, a very different neighborhood. So we drove out to Flatbush, met with Felix in his store. Raw space, wallboard, almost like a warehouse storefront, stacked to the ceiling with bargain furniture priced to move. The clientele appeared to be all working people from the neighborhood without a lot of money to spare. Felix told us a story. The story was about a guy named Dimitri Gufield, Felix's partner in a different furniture store years earlier. Then Dimitri moved back to Russia for a year. When Dimitri returned, he reintroduced himself to Felix. Dimitri was a gangster now, and he expected Felix to start paying him protection money. Felix was deeply offended by this. He was offended to be treated as a stooge by someone he thought of as a peer, an equal. We're the same. We're furniture guys. Who are you to think you're some tough gangster? Dimitri lived in a nice colonial house on Long Island. He had a nice family, wife, kids. They lived what seemed to be a respectable middle-class life. But Dimitri's dream, the thing he wanted most in life, was to be a big-time gangster. He gathered a little crew around himself, and every young punk in the crew had to go out and identify businesses to extort for protection money. Dimitri's own focus was on furniture stores, because that's what he knew. Dimitri pitched guys like Felix, and Felix agreed to pay right off the bat. Felix was irate. He felt humiliated. But he was susceptible because he had a family, too. Then Dimitri wanted more. He went back to Felix and said, 
The other owners, they look up to you. I need you to bring them together. We'll have a meeting. We'll call in half a dozen of them. I'll be there. You'll tell them that you've decided to start paying me. And you'll tell them they should follow your lead and pay me also. That's when Felix called the FBI. He didn't want to go through with the meeting. He hoped we could protect him from the protection racket. A phone call and a story like Felix's are uncommon. An agent doesn't often get tipped off to an extortion demand as it's happening. So Sheehy and I, Sheehy's my partner, were keyed up. We went back to Kerr's office wondering what we should do. And Kerr asked if Felix would wear a wire. I said, I think so. This guy seems all in. Felix was all in. In our first meeting with him, he said, I shouldn't have to pay because this is America. Nobody has to pay for protection here. He looked at us, two fledgling FBI agents, and he said about the thug who was trying to rule that neighborhood by fear and force. He said, I don't need him. I have you. Felix was a tax-paying, green card-holding, law-abiding citizen, and his calculus was just that simple. Hearing what he said, I experienced again what I had first felt at Quantico, a shift in the most basic sense of who I was and my purpose in the world. Two days later, we went back to Felix's store. In his little office, he took off his shirt so I could put the wire on him. The recording device was a metal box about the size of a pack of cigarettes with wire leads connected to microphones coming out of it. Putting the microphone up high on the chest catches the sound the best, but on a hairy guy, and Felix was as hairy as a bear, <laughs> you can get a lot of scratching sounds. <clears throat> the device itself has to be hidden somewhere that won't be found on a typical pat-down, so we tucked it into a pocket designed to hang in the groin area from, a, from an elastic waistband. Felix's street nickname was accurate, if not imaginative. I'm sorry, Felix's street nickname, which was accurate, if not imaginative, was Big Felix. <laughs> he was so large that the Velcro ends of the elastic waistband were never going to meet. <laughs> he leaned over a table and I stood behind him trying to pull the thing together, <laughs> like a lady's maid tightening the strings on a whalebone corset. And then Felix had an inspiration. We could make the waistband stick with packing tape. We wrapped it around and around him and then sent him in. I remember wondering what it was going to feel like to take that tape off. <laughs> the meeting was at another furniture store. Dmitry Gufield and his number two, Alexander Kutsenko, along with a man named Manny Chilpayev, who turned out to be, in many ways, the brains of the gang, rolled up and tricked out Benzes and BMWs, swaggered onto the sidewalk wearing three-quarter length black leather jackets. Nothing subtle about this scene. Sheehy and I were staked out up the block in a car. We took a lot of pictures. Later, when the meeting was over, Dimitri went out on the sidewalk and talked to his guys in front of Felix and talked to Felix alone a little more. Felix was chain-smoking, gray-faced, perspiring heavily. We met up with him later and went to his store. By now, he was drenched. He looked like he was having a heart attack. Fumbling with his keys, he couldn't unlock his own front door. We got the wire off, and then Felix described what had happened. One of the older people in the meeting, Pavel, who was in his late 70s, allegedly owed Dmitri money on a separate debt. So Dmitri made Pavel sit in the middle of the group. Dmitri berated him and slapped him around as he told the rest of the furniture store owners about the payments he wanted them to make. When a woman told Dmitri no, she wasn't going to pay, Dmitri started beating Pavel as if to show this is what's at stake. 
By the end of the meeting, everyone there, except for the woman and her business partner, agreed to pay. Back outside, Dimitri told his guys, I want the woman beaten and I want her in the hospital so she stays there for at least two weeks. That's what Felix heard him say at the end when he was melting in sweat. We took off the wire and listened. It was all there. And last, I just will read a, a, a couple of paragraphs here that I think um, kind of captures my thoughts about the current environment. I do not want to get down in the mud with the president. I do feel that I have an obligation to stand up and say, you can't do this. You can't just continue to attack people with an endless string of baseless lies. No one should be able to do that. The president of the United States especially should not. Analyzing or breaking down the specifics of what he said on Twitter is a fool's errand. And I understand that it is meaningless to be called a liar by the most prolific liar I have ever encountered. But I will say this, Donald Trump would not know the men and the women of the FBI if he ran them over with the presidential limo. And he has shown the citizens of this country that he does not know what democracy means. He demonstrates no understanding or appreciation of our form of government. He takes no action to protect it. Has any president done more to undermine democracy than this one? His I hereby demand tweet in May of 2018, ordering Department of Justice investigations of the investigators who are investigating him, I can barely believe I just wrote that phrase, <laughs> is a clear example. His demand for documents identifying confidential informants does harm to the men and women of the FBI on a fundamental level. It undermines their ability to build the trust that allows law enforcement investigations to take place in ways that I want to believe he does not comprehend. To think that he could recognize what constitutes a good thing for the men and women of the FBI does not deserve a comment. So thank you for listening. Sure. So we have uh, two microphones here, which is probably a good idea to try to fight your way to those if you'd like oh. to ask a question so folks can hear. It was hear. an easy fight. <laughs> awesome. Um, um, good afternoon. And my name's Marianne Adams, and I drove from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to come see oh you. Oh, my gosh. So. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. I've watched you all week, and it's been an honor. And I think one of the best interviews was Nicole Wallace. And so, I, so if you haven't seen that, you should, you should watch that. So one of my, um, I got, I could ask you so many questions, but <laughs> I can only pick one. You could work for NBC with that. Yes. <laughs> um, is that you had mentioned in, in one of these interviews about, um, I always wanted to know the point that you felt that the Trump campaign was really not honest in a sense that, that the Russians have really probably infiltrated in, a, in, a, in detrimental effects to the democracy of the United States. You had discussed that, and, and you had talked up a little bit about early, the end of 15. And so they, I said, what's that turning point that you realize, oh, crap, we are, whole, you know, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. I mean, that, that moment that, wait a minute, this is, 
this is is it is it the Trump Tower meeting? And and and, and to add to that, I was just I don't know if I should mention this out loud, but my thought about they talk about Obama um, wiring the Trump Tower. What about our allies listening in to the Trump Tower meetings? Could that have been a potential way of finding information? You know, because we we all work together around the world to secure the nations. Could that have been a possibility? But yeah. thank you. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming so far. Um, all great questions. And I'll try to unpack a little bit of that. I don't know that I can speak specifically to the Trump Tower meeting. It's something that kind of came about or our knowledge of it came about after we had turned over those investigations to Director Mueller. Um, but it's, it's important, I think, to remember that we were working a growing swell of issues and concerns that started uh, during the campaign and, of course, kind of hit their first peak with the production of the intelligence community assessment. And that was, you know, the FBI, CIA, and NSA combining all of their information. So our, you know, whatever, that might be human source information, it might be, you know, other forms of electronic intelligence, things like that to say, do we think the Russians actually meddled with the election? And of course, the resounding conclusion was yes, they, they had, and they had, we assessed for three different purposes. So understand if you accept that as a given that the Russians meddled in the election, then the question becomes, well, did they have involvement with the campaign to do that? Um, and more information comes to our attention, right? And information from human sources, um, information from foreign uh, um, allies who had interacted with people in very strange ways. So we start thinking about if this is if this is possible, we should look at are there people in or around the campaign who we know have significant interactions with the Russian government. And that led to the opening of the first four cases. And that's really what got us thinking about this idea that someone from the campaign, not necessarily the candidate, now president, but someone connected to the campaign may have been coordinating with things like the theft of emails from the DNC and, and John Podesta and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so that's really kind of what got us started. And that initial Russia investigation, whose code name I will not officially mention, um, started with four cases on four individuals. Um, as, a, as that's going on, the president gets inaugurated and Director Comey has a series of odd and concerning interactions with the president. And like, I can't overstate this enough, every administration comes in with a lot to learn. We had been through transitions before. Like we are the only organization in town that stays relatively intact as administrations. We only have, there is only one political appointee in the FBI, it is the director. And he has a very long term. So all of us had been through this, this process before. And we know that there are adjustments that have to be made. There's a lot of information we need to get to them. We need to kind of teach people how this thing works and how to push and pull the levers of government to, do, to protect the country effectively. So we really went into that process in January with open minds, like, okay, this is gonna be different because you have a lot of people who do not have prior experience in government 
And by virtue of the things they had said during the campaign, we knew they were bringing a lot of skepticism of government people and processes and the whole drain the swamp thing. We thought we're not going to have, we're not beginning with a high level of trust that could make this more challenging. Um, But then Director Comey had those series of interactions with the president. Each one of them, you wondered is like, is this it? Or is this just a lack of experience, a lack of sophistication about how this works? And it wasn't until, I mean, for me personally, it wasn't until the president asked the director to drop the case against Mike Flynn that I had that kind of watershed moment of thinking, this is not inexperience. It's not a lack of knowledge about how the White House should interact with the FBI and the Justice Department. This is an effort to put a thumb on the scale and eliminate a process they, they think is going to be dangerous to them, which is not something we were willing to do, of course. I'm sorry, that was a long answer. <clears throat> yes, sir. Uh, hello, my name is Ernesto Jimenez Hope, and I'm doing an essay for school. Uh, and it's on awesome. the effects of domestic agencies such as the FBI and NSA and kind of their effects on civil liberties. So from your experience, I wanted to ask you, uh, does the United States compromise too many civil liberties in the name of counterterrorism? If you thought the last answer was long, <laughs> buckle in, buckle in. Wow. These are the school projects that I'll do. Um, that is a great question. And I'm, I'm sorry, Ernesto, it's not one I'm going to be able to give you a very uh, uh, convenient answer to. That cuts to the very core of one of the most fundamental challenges, the most fundamental balances that we try to strike in this country, that balance between security and, and personal liberty and freedom, right? Um, it's an incredibly uh, um, important thing that we should all be thinking about. We spent a lot of time in the FBI thinking about that. We spent a lot of effort trying to comply with the laws and the judicial rulings and the policies and the regulations that are in place to make sure that we are always observing that fragile balance. But then we run into issues like encryption and, you know, should the F, should there be spaces, should there be communications and that are completely beyond the reach of law enforcement. That's something that causes law enforcement and intelligence professionals like me great concern because it chips away at our ability to protect the country and and the people in it. But I know that other people see it very differently. I think the most important thing I can say to you about this is it's an incredibly important debate that we should be having. No one should be comfortable with with the idea of the FBI deciding that balance in the same way that no one should be comfortable with the idea of the private sector entities that have a lot of business at stake in that decision to decide that balance either. These are the kind of questions that we should be debating vigorously on the Hill and in the corridors of government and our our elected representatives should be focusing on exactly this and addressing those subjects. So at the risk of of splitting hairs, uh, I've seen you in numerous, oh, sorry. Sorry. So numerous uh, interviews, you've mentioned the meeting with the gang of eight. Yes. And just, I know you've characterized nobody said a word. Was there, were there facial expressions? I mean, where, I mean, I'm just, I know, I just, it's, it's yeah. puzzling to me. Yeah. It's a good question. Um, 
Nobody was on their phone playing Tetris or anything like that. Okay. They were very focused. Um, it's a small room in the basement of the, I think we were on the house side and down in the skiff, which is the area where you can discuss classified material. Um, the leadership members themselves all sat at a, they were at a long table. Rod and I were at one end of the long table. On one side, you had all the, you, the Republican leaders and on the other side, all, in fact, it was the other way. I think the, the Democrat, Democratic leaders were on my right and the Republicans were on my left. Uh, I know, odd, right? That's why I remember it, probably. And I was very quiet. They were very focused. They listened to everything I had to say. There were kind of, you know, grim faces, like nods of recognition and of the seriousness and the significance of the steps we, we had taken. And I, I went through the kind of a full update on where we were with this Russia investigation and there was a, I guess that would be the way I would describe it, kind of resignation. I think there was no debate. There was no pushback, like, how could you do that? You're yeah. a horrible person or anything like that. It was just kind of acceptance. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yep. Yes, sir. Hi. Um, I drove all the way from half a mile away to be here today. <laughs> that can sometimes be a tough drive. So <laughs> It hadn't started raining yet. Yeah. Um, and I want to thank you for your appearance today and, and for your service. Thank uh, you. I myself served at the Department of Justice for 31 years uh, before I retired two years ago. And while I was there, uh, it was pretty much understood that the work of the Office of Inspector General was beyond reproach. Uh, yet there are th several things about that office's investigation of your activities while Deputy Director of the FBI that seem abnormal or uh, at least unusual to me. Uh, do you have any evidence or are you at least suspicious that either the fact or the timing of the IG's investigation was politically influenced by the White House or Attorney General Sessions? My attorney is sitting right there. <laughs> and I think if I go, but as I go too far down this road, he's going to jump up and knock me down. Um, so I am a, a little bit limited in what I can discuss because it's an ongoing matter. Um, and it is one that I will be addressing with a civil suit against the Department of Justice that will shed light on all of the things that you have just brought up. I have, um, I have great concern about the process, about the speed about the communications around that process. I have great concern around information, relevant information directly relevant to the conclusions they drew, not supporting those conclusions, which was left out of the report. You know, a report of investigation should be exactly that. Here's what we found, pro and con. And then of course, recommendations. Um, there were a lot of significant things that were left out of that report. Um, was it the result of political influence? I believe it was. Um, I have been considered an enemy of this president since before he was elected. I can't explain why. It's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, is it because he perceives me as some sort of a democratic operative out to get him? Is it because of my prior involvement investigating Russian organized crime? Um, I don't know the answer to these things, but they're all things that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, 
So I'll have to unfortunately allow the civil suit to address your concerns, but I can tell you that I share those same concerns and I will not ever let this go um, until we've shed light on the entire process and why we got to where we are. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi, so I'm a student at Loyola, Maryland, and my question actually has to do with hacking since you brought that up in the intro. And since we found out recently that our natural gas reserves are susceptible to hacking, what aren't we doing as a country and what do we need to do as a country to protect our national security in that realm? Another huge question, <laughs> hugely important, one that I probably can't address for you as completely as you'd like. Um, but I can tell you that we spent an enormous amount of time in the FBI and working with the interagency on addressing those, the concerns that we have of, uh, of uh, adversarial cyber activity. And at the top of that list is, are we doing enough to protect our critical infrastructure? Are we doing enough to protect um, those functions that support communications, transportation, energy, all those things that we rely on and don't even think about. Um, it is a massive challenge. It's a challenge that changes every day. The cyber threat vectors are constantly shifting, which is one of the things that makes developing expertise and bringing the right folks into, into work those issues so challenging. But um, have we done enough? We, we've never done enough. Right? The threat still exists, it gets worse every day, we need to do more. And again, I would say um, we would help ourselves greatly with some considered attention and focus from our representatives on the Hill to address some of these things legislatively. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. Yes, ma'am. Hello. Since we're all recording our commutes, I want to say for the record, <laughs> that I walked in the rain <laughs> from a mile away. The green commute, good for you. Thank you. Um, mostly I, I, I wanna say how grateful I am for your bravery and I suppose I would say for your service. I am in awe of your presence of mind and and just your courage in those eight days after your boss was fired. I'm so proud. Thank you. To know you. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for proud saying that. To be standing here and talking to you. Uh, so thank you. I appreciate that so much. Um, I, I was not alone. Um, and I am no different than, than there are thousands of decisions that people in government make every day, decisions that are guided by their core values, their dedication and commitment to their organizations in this country. Um, great work happens around this country every day by those people, and we don't appreciate them enough. I simply tried to do exactly that and follow their example and do what I knew was um, necessary under the circumstances with the facts that we had in our hands. Um, you know, I, 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 as I discussed the book, I knew it was kind of casting the die on my own fate. Um, but I thought that it was more important. So, so thank you I, for recognizing that. Sure. I have a short question. Do you miss sure. the work? <laughs> <laughs> Terribly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I miss the people. 
Um, it's, you know, such a, it's your life. It, it, it takes over your entire life as Jill and Maggie will tell you. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, very hard to leave the FBI under the best circumstances. And I left under, uh, you know, terrible circumstances. So that's been very hard. Um, but I know they're still there doing terrific work and that, and that makes me happy. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm Robert Litvak. I share the gratitude of the other citizens here today. Thank you. Uh, you've been subjected to many charges, uh, one of which from the president is that the FBI has been politicized. And I think there's no obvious, more obvious refutation of that than the fact that it never leaked before the election from the FBI. That's right. That there was a counterintelligence operation going on. That's right. My question is, what was it like being at the FBI in late October, early November and saying around the coffee machine, holy crap, the American people are about to vote for a candidate who has an open counterintelligence operation against him. Um, your question has captured, you know, really what we were thinking. It, it was so unprecedented. Um, <clears throat> one of the joys of working at the FBI is you get to work on like really hard things, you know, issues that challenge you, things that haven't been thought through maybe before. And this was certainly that, on steroids. Um, and so, and in the, but in those moments, you really just, you come back to what, you know, you come back to your training and your experience. You think, okay, we, the, there are, we have these authorities, we have these responsibilities, we need to do our job and nobody really knows where this is going to end or how it'll work out. But, um, that's what we tried to do. Uh, and I would, I would posit that had we decided knowing what we knew, the facts that we had, on you know, May 10th, had we decided not to open the case, that would have been the politicization of the FBI. Mm -hmm. There was no reason not to go forward other than the fact that the subject was the President of the United States. So it, had we made that choice, we would have essentially been saying there are a class of people in this country who, do not, who are not held accountable, who are not subjected to the same sort of rigorous fair, independent investigation that the rest of us are subjected to. So um, that's not something that any of us could countenance. Hi. Yes, ma'am. <clears throat> um, sort of follow up of that in a way. Um, I'm continually distressed by the figures that come out that this morning I saw that 89% of Republicans still support the president, which I can't wrap my head around. And um, I understand that you, I don't know if you still are, you were a registered Republican. And, um, <laughs> may, and maybe you could offer some insight as to that, because at least in Google, it said that you didn't vote in the 2016 election. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> and I'm wondering, with all that, what, what caused you not to vote in that election, given all the information you had? Is there something that you saw in the president that you felt, you know, you you might support? What was your feeling about the president at that time? Because I totally don't understand people who support him at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll tell you, it's still, even to this day, it's still, and I've, I have stated that, and I told the president himself that I did not vote in that in the 2016 presidential election. It is the first and only presidential election I've ever not voted in. Um, and I explained to him that I chose not to because of the political nature of the investigations I was, I was involved oh, in. Okay. 
I felt like under the circumstances, it would be best if I sat that election out. Um, now, you've asked about my own political beliefs. It's still, I have to be honest, it's still a little bit weird talking about that because it's just not something that... You're used um, to Yeah, I'm not used to it. I'm not a political person. And I worked in a place where people don't talk about their personal political beliefs. You know, we, we're very careful about not bringing that to our work. Um, but I will say I, I did, until 2016, I had always voted for Republican candidates for the presidency. Um, and so I've always kind of considered myself to be a conservative, a Republican. Um, at this point, I can't imagine supporting, certainly not the president, but really any Republican um, in a political contest. I, it's, uh, I feel like they have the collective cowardice of their failure to stand up to what are such obvious transgressions by any chief executive, be he Democrat or Republican, is <laughs> abysmal. in the FBI feel somewhat disenfranchised? I mean, you were sort of saying because you were involved in something, you couldn't vote in a, some, a vote that you would never have to reveal. That's sort of interesting to yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for other people in the FBI. I just felt like it was a good idea. I didn't, ha I didn't have to make that decision. I was never told, you know, you can't or don't, or it's a bad idea. I just felt in my own mind that it was it would be better if I didn't have, if I didn't wade into those waters, give me a little bit more um, kind of objectivity, maybe neutrality in the work we were doing. Yes, sir. Hi, uh, my name is Nick Douse, and I made the very long commute of an Uber ride up from Foggy Bottom nice. here today. Um, before I get to my I question. I love this is like share your commute day. <laughs> awesome. I, I used figured, to commute I every I day. Well I don't in. do it anymore. So this is fascinating to me. <laughs> um, before I get to my question, I told my mom that I was coming here and she wanted me, if I could, to convey to you that she uh, gives you her full support. Thank and you. And she admires you as a true patriot. I know that word gets co-opted negatively a lot nowadays, but you definitely fit the bill and you Thank have you. mine as well. Um, so much like you working in the FBI, um, you believe in the virtues this country was founded on and that, you know, we've strived to fulfill throughout our entire history. Um, I wanted to, do, I still do want to do the same thing. Got my degrees in international affairs and international security, ideal job working as an analyst, either state department, DOD, so on and so forth. Um, when I got to that position to pursue such a career, the election 2016 happened and uh, the president decided to basically act in a way of co-opting all these agencies to his, what feels like his own personal goals, not his, not the country's goals. Uh, you read articles of, you know, GS-15 people in the State Department being retasked punitively towards doing FOIA requests or, you know, the dropping morale in various agencies, the FBI included. Um, so I was just wondering for um, people like me, uh, what would be your words to basically reconcile, you know, our principles and our viewpoints, mm -hmm. but also our dreams of working for the country, even though, you know, to put it bluntly, we have a stinking pile of corruption as a president? It's well, well put. Uh, well, I'll tell. I, I'll say that you are exactly what I'm afraid of. I am afraid that talented, dedicated people who want to spend their lives serving their communities and their nation um, are going to be discouraged from doing so because of the 
abject mess that they see happening in this town. Um, and so I think it's incredibly important. I would, I would recommend to you to reconsider. Um, it is more important now than ever to get involved. It is, we need people of conscience, people of values, people who n understand and appreciate um, democracy and the things that we all hold sacred to take that responsibility forward, to lift this load and carry us forward. The situation we're in right now will not last, right? Mm -hmm. Who knows yep. when it ends, but um, it's not forever. We've been through terrible periods before in this country. We've come out the other side. We're stronger as a result of it. I am as, as sad as the book is at some points, I am an optimist. I, I firmly believe that we will get past this and I hope that it sparks a renewal of ideas like that, like how important it is to think about democracy, what it means to us, and how it's all part of our responsibility to uphold and support it. So I would say to you, as as dark as it seems right now, step forward and shed some light on it. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, sir. My name is David Mitchell. Um, my question, I mean, it seems to me that this obsession with making the FBI appear to be beyond reproach, even at the expense of the Department of Justice, has come back to bite you guys in the ass many times. Um, so my question is, do you think Comey was right to ask you to recuse yourself in the Clinton investigation of the email and the Clinton Foundation? Um, do, you, do you regret recusing yourself? Mm -hmm. And I think you had the best of intentions when you, you know, revealed that the Clinton Foundation was under investigation. But, you know, and it was nine days before the election. Um, but, so do you regret that now? Those two good questions. So I'll take your first one first. Um, I didn't agree with Jim's request that I recuse from those cases. I had very strong uh, conversations with Jim and with our um, general counsel and others. Um, I thought it was not called for. My opinion that it was not called for was later confirmed by our chief ethics officer. Um, and I also, but more importantly, I felt like it would create the, the, the false um, suggestion that my participation in the case was somehow illegitimate all along. And it would, it would have the unintended consequence of drawing even more suspicion and criticism to a case that was actually incredibly well investigated. Um, and so the idea that recusing could actually make it harder on our investigators to stand up for what they did was just, um, it was very frustrating to me. Jim and I had that conversation very clearly um, at the conclusion of it. He asked me to recuse. I disagreed with his opinion. It was neither illegal nor immoral, and he was the director of the FBI, so I did what he asked. Um, I wish it hadn't have gone that way, but that was his call. In terms of my own interactions with um, with authorizing folks to interact with the journal. Michael's shaking his head at me here. Um, so there's, a very, there's not much I can, that, that I can talk, that I can say about that because it's still a, a quite, it's under active investigation. Um, but I do hope that you get the impression from the book that um, I am very open 
to the idea of going back and looking at the decisions we made. Um, and I've tried to be very honest about how I feel about those things. Some of them I feel differently about today than I did then. I don't uh, walk away from the responsibility of having participated in some of them. Um, and some of them I maybe would think about very differently today. Um, but in any case, I hope you see it that way. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Barry Cutler. I have a softball question that Michael doesn't have to worry about. Excellent. But I think, I think we can benefit from it. Um, I would have thought that your opening was a total puff piece if I hadn't spent four years working with the Bureau as an assistant U.S. attorney a long time ago. And in the four years, I never suspected that an agent was lying on the road. Uh, but they often tip me off when a local cop was lying under oath, for instance, in a probable cause hearing. Uh, I had a number of people, including the parents of an 18-year-old who was indicted for a trap violation, come to the arraignment and tell me, I can't believe how polite they were, which is actually what Roger Stone said. And, and I've never heard of an agent uh, shooting or choking anyone without any apparent provocation. I used to think that the reason for that is that you had different hiring standards. Uh, but I talked to a number of agents who said, when I was a teenager, I could have gone either way, and it was just pure luck that I wound up on the right side. How do you account for your different culture from what we see in so many local police departments? Hey boy, there's a lot built into that one. Um, you know, it's how do you capture, how do you kind of quantify and explain institutional culture anywhere? Uh, it's hard to do. Um, but the FBI has a particularly strong culture. I mean, we've been around for, what, 109 years now, 110 maybe, 110, 111, something like that. I don't check. I'm an attorney. I don't do math. So <laughs> um, it's about your history. It's about your commitment to these issues. You know, one of the things that Jim Comey did that I that I was uh, always impressed by was he kind of regenerated our focus and our conversations around our core values. You know, you can't. Um, we completely redrafted and focused our mission statement while um, while I served under Jim. Um, and these things, you know, some people tend to dismiss those things as you know, oh, it's it's like corporate speak and all that sort of thing. I disagree. It's incredibly important that the people who work in your organization can understand at any moment, no matter what they're doing, how that fits into your obligations, your mission, and how they are supporting that. You know, everybody plays a role in that. So um, there's a very strong culture in the FBI. It is not always perfect. We have a long checkered past, right? But we've also had the advantage of coming through those times when we lost sight of the democratic ideals that we should have been upholding and protecting. We were held accountable for those transgressions and we had the opportunity to change and develop as a result of those mistakes. Um, it takes great leadership. It takes leadership that's transparent, that communicates well, and that's committed to those core values on a, on a regular basis. So we've been very lucky. We get great people. We've had great leadership. Um, None of that is an insurance policy. None of that guarantees perfection. We, we make our own mistakes. Um, but all in all, I think that, uh, that we do well. You know, there was a day, in, uh, which we'll 
will live on for me forever, July 28th, which is significant to me for other reasons. But one of the things that happened that day was the president made his comments in front of a group of law enforcement um, officers in New York. I think it was out on Long Island. And he made some flippant remark about, you know, when you're putting them in the car, you know, don't be so nice. And, and I, you know, I was caught up in all kinds of <laughs> issues at the time. I have a fairly full plate as acting director. And I had some conversations with the leader of another federal law enforcement organization that I will not name. Um, and he was as incensed as I was. And he wanted to put a message out to his employees to, uh, you know, to express his disagreement with the president's comments. I thought long and hard about that for an entire weekend about whether I could, whether I should, what would happen. Ultimately, I decided that the situation between the president and I had become so fraught that it would likely have been misinterpreted as me kind of, kind of starting some sort of personal, you know, tit for tat. And I didn't do it. But one of the reasons I didn't feel I absolutely had to is because I knew that FBI people would never do what he just said we should think about doing. So I wasn't really worried. People dismissed it as utter nonsense that wasn't consistent with our approach to the work we do. I would just add as a footnote that the first of my two four years, two of my four years were when Hoover was still director. <laughs> no, but at the street level, the agents and even the SACs had the culture that they have today, regardless yeah. of what was going on at the top. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Yes, sir. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Jim Hurd, and um, background uh, in career development, and I worked a little over the years with Richard Bowles, who wrote What Color Is Your Parachute? So I would just uh, say that people's natural skills and talents and passions are, are always useful, and I think we're going to see probably the next president of the United States need your skills and talents and passions. Uh, I don't know about that. Uh, no, no, they, no comment. But uh, right. My question mm -hmm. is, I was worried to see uh, that part of the New York FBI that put pressure on Jim Comey and seemed to be possibly influenced by Rudy Giuliani. And if, looking back, if you see that... Uh, energy going on in an FBI, you could have a hard time mm -hmm. having the FBI take any um, uh, testimony and indicting uh, or provide information. So I was just interested to hear if you had any thoughts about that time, mm -hmm. whether that crew influenced Jim Comey to come out uh, on, you know, 10 days before the election. And then the larger question of how we watch that and, and care about facts in the longer yeah. term. Um, so there's no question. Jim and I were very concerned about what we perceived to be a, an alarming increase, um, increased instances of what were likely FBI employees sharing case information and sensitive information with people outside the Bureau, and then that information making its way into the press. Look, it is a it's a never-ending issue. Every organization suffers from it to some extent. But during that fall of 20, 
16. It seemed to be really reaching a fever pitch around some issues and potentially out of the New York field office, although I can't sit here and say that it's, oh, it's all in New York and wasn't other places as well. Um, and you're right. The reason we were concerned about it was because if we lose our ability to convey to people that we're capable of responsibly handling sensitive information, we're lost. We're in a lot of trouble. You know, um, people tell us really important things that they need handled responsibly every day. Foreign governments, foreign intelligence services, informants. I mean, like it's, you know, that's what, that's what we, that's the commerce that we are engaged in. And so if we start losing our reputation for being able to handle things uh, the way we should, that's a, a very concerning thing. So that's what Jim and I were thinking about. Um, we had initiated a review of uh, exactly that, what was happening, how, how, how were these things making their way out? And more broadly, were we communicating, what, what were our policies directing this sort of activity? And were we communicating them effectively to the workforce? What we found was that FBI media policy was actually derived from about a dozen different places. There was no, we weren't clearly training and communicating in the way that we thought we should. And so we ultimately reformed all of that, re redrafted all of the FBI media policies. But it was a very challenging time. It definitely made our work harder during those months. I can't sit here and tell you that that's why Jim decided to make his statement to Congress or he didn't. Um, but I can tell you that that, that, uh, that environment of increasing you know, leaks and the concerns about our information, you know, being handled not responsibly was something that was weighing heavily on our minds with respect to the Clinton email case, but with respect to other cases as well, because there's a lot of stuff coming out at that, at that moment that wasn't just kind of Clinton email related. Do you think that'll be investigated that what happened during that time frame? Well, we did initiate investigative. But I mean, efforts. any of it come out publicly, maybe. I haven't seen that. Sure. You never know. It's always possible. But um, you know, leak cases generally are unbelievably hard uh, to investigate. And they almost, they very rarely come to a satisfying and clear conclusion. Um, we have very strict guidelines for very good reasons about not pursuing um, investigative uh, avenues focused on reporters, you know, the ultimate place where the leak ends up. So that makes it very hard to track where that information came from. Um, so what about they, the internal pressure on Comey to, to do that? Uh, there was a lot of pressure sure. on Jim and I, it was a, it was a tough couple months. Thanks. Appreciate it. We're about out of time here. I do have two people right behind me. So if we could take these last two questions really, really, really quickly together, uh, that would be great. And then we'll move to the signing. If you are here for the signing, if you could just stay seated for just a second while we get situated up here, and then we'll have the line going back toward the register. Uh, and if you could purchase the book up there, that would be wonderful. If you're not looking to stay for the signing, you are free to leave after these last two questions, which we'll take together right now. You're free to go. <laughs> I'm going to leave before my question. Um, 
Uh, my name is Justin Frank, and I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you for your message to all of us about the importance of standing up and speaking truth to power. Um, it's thank just you. central. Thank you. Um, the other thing is that you're one of the few people who is in this room, I assume, including myself, who've actually had private meetings with our president. And I don't know how many you've had. I haven't read your book yet, but I'm curious. I'm a psychoanalyst. And... Uh, <laughs> And I know that I'm you, not saying anything. And I and and I know that you have a lot of experience learning about personality assessment and just experience interviewing people. I'm curious what you were. Do you have any thoughts you could share for a, in a in a minute or two? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's uh. So I, I met with the president on three occasions only. Uh -huh. The first time, the night that Jim was fired, uh, then the, the next afternoon, and then about a week later when I was interviewed for the job of, of director of the FBI. Uh, there was, we also had one phone, direct phone call on the, on the day after Jim was fired. So those are my only direct interactions with the president. Um, and I relate them in a lot of detail in the book, so I won't, I won't uh, spoiler alert or anything here, but it's a... It's an experience you don't forget. <laughs> it's, uh, he is an overwhelming communicator. He comes out behind the desk. He's already talking. He repeats himself again and again and again. He kind of seems to like get stuck on, on a thought. And so he just says it again until the next one comes in. Um, he, he'll, it's he called jumps. perseveration. There you go. That's the name for it. He jumps from topic to topic, some of them having nothing to do with the reasons you're there. Um, it's, you know, and as a, as a career government worker, to be in the Oval Office is already an awe-inspiring mm -hmm. and, and respectful thing. I mean, you have a, I, I had a, you know, a palpable sense of like, oh my God, I am in the Oval Office. This is where, you know, the world changes in this yeah. office. And the, and the you know, the incredible people that have made decisions in there. So you, you already go in, in in a state of kind of hyper awareness, and then you, you kind of get this onslaught of frenzied communication. It's, it's, it's intense. Thank you. <clears throat> Hi, my name is Meryl, and Hi, I came all the way from San Diego. Wow. <laughs> wow. Pittsburgh, she just knocked you out. You went, to see you and RBG. All right. <laughs> I saw her on Tuesday, so I'm thrilled to see her, and I'm blessed to see you, too. Well, okay, I have you. two real quick questions. Okay. All presidents get a presidential library. Do you see anything? <laughs> Do you see anything you could put into his library? <laughs> Has he accomplished anything at all to put on the walls? Boy, um, <laughs> I can't imagine what that would be like. Can you, any, anything? Has he done anything? I mean. Well, um, yeah, I, I, no? I, I, don't even, <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. Okay, here's um, the second question I have Let me for try you. round two, okay. okay. The second question is, I've watched you on MSNBC constantly. You're on everybody's, you know, hit list to talk to. <laughs> Are you possibly considering being a correspondent for them, maybe, after this is all over? Is that something that you've been approached with? I, I am simply 
responding to the requests to go out okay. and tell my story and I'll do it anywhere. It just so happens they've been very interested and I've had, I've been able to go on a couple different shows there. I think I'm doing CNN on Monday, right. CBS next week. So we're trying to just be available. Um, I haven't really thought much, okay. to be honest, about what to do next. I am really excited to get out and talk to people and talk about these things in a in an important way. Yeah. I think these conversations are so helpful um, and productive. And so I'm, I'm going to try to do some public speaking. Okay. Um, so I'm looking Great. forward to that. And for the last year, I've basically driven carpool and walked the dog. So wow. really, <laughs> anything other than that is going to be very exciting. Okay. <laughs> My last question to you is, I saw you on Bill Maher last night. Are you going to talk to Sean Hannity? Are you mm. going to? And what would you say to him if you have the opportunity? I was not on Bill Maher last night. Phil? Oh, you weren't? Yeah. No. No. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I say Adam Schiff. Oh, oh, oh. But, but stay tuned oh, to Bill was. Maher. Oh, it was. It was Adam Schiff. Oh. Yeah, you got to see him. Got to see him. Just saying. Okay. All right, thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you very much. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.